In the world of mergers and acquisitions, new opportunities and challenges and trends emerge so rapidly it's sometimes difficult to keep pace. Added to that is the fact that almost every deal of any reasonable size has a multinational component, and the rules covering direct foreign investment are also changing quickly in the U.S. and in jurisdictions around the world. To help explain how deal-making is changing, Jones Day is launching a multi-episode podcast series on foreign investment. We're kicking it off with Randy Lezik and Chase Konecki with a conversation on global trends and M&A. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks. In more than 20 years of practice, Randy Lesnick has advised on M&A transactions with an aggregate value in excess of $250 billion. She is the administrative partner for Jones Day's M&A practice. Among her many professional recognitions, Randy was named Dealmaker of the Year by the American Lawyer Magazine in 2018. Chase Konicki has for more than 10 years advised Jones Day clients on complex issues associated with international trade and national security matters. He represents clients in foreign direct investment matters, including filing Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, or CFIUS notices, and negotiating mitigation agreements. Randy, Chase, thanks for being here today. Thanks, thanks for having us. Let's go big picture first to give this conversation some context. Randy, what types of trends are you seeing in global M&A? Well, I think that we are continuing to see some meaningful roles for technology transactions, whether that's industrial technology, uh, AI, or other technology as a component of general transactions. That being said, trade tensions and stock market volatility may have an outsized effect on tech M&A in the coming year. I also think we're going to see more divestitures. You've got shareholder activism continuing to play a meaningful role in M&A as time goes on. And then transactions with China will continue to be a challenge, not just in the, for transactions coming out of the United States, but also Germany and other parts of Europe where strengthened foreign investment control regimes are putting pressure on deals with China. Interesting. That's a lot to unpack, and we're going to get to all this. You mentioned uh, continuing interest in technology. Are there particular sectors that remain interested to uh, acquirers out there? Well, I think one of the interesting things about technology is that it is a driver for so much transaction and so much transformation, uh, whether it's in life sciences, biotech, industrial, M&A. I think technology plays a role in each and every aspect of the M&A transactional universe. And so while tech, pure tech plays may be impacted by trade tensions, et cetera, because of critical technologies and the way they're being defined. I don't think technology is going away and it continues to be a disruptor and a driver for change. Interesting. We're going to talk more about cross-border deals, if that's still the term we use sometimes. What would you say, Randy, looking at the deals you've worked on recently and, and things that might be in the pipeline, what percentage of the deals you're working on involve companies with locations and operations in multiple countries? At least 90, 95%. <laughs> Whether it's that an entity's got subsidiaries or it has sales across the globe, um, so many of our clients are multinational that 
it's pretty unbelievable in terms of when you start to do a large transaction, you have to think not only about antitrust filings in multiple jurisdictions, but data privacy regimes and foreign investment control regimes. And when you look at that, it really impacts the way you do transactions nowadays. Okay, 90 to 95%, you said. That would have been unimaginable, I would have thought, you know, 20 years ago or so. Am I correct? Weren't, was it mostly, you know, you do deals? in your own country, I think. How much has this changed? It used to be a lot more domestic. I mean, we may still be doing a U.S. to U.S. transaction, but each of those entities are likely to have operations overseas, um, customers overseas, and government regulation has obviously played a much larger role in transactions in terms of next steps and how they interplay with the deals that you're doing than they would have done, you know, 15, 20 years ago, as you articulated. Sure, sure. You know, we live in a world that is nothing if not complex. <laughs> and you touched on a couple of these things earlier when I asked you about the, the general trends in M&A. But talk about geopolitical issues and how geopolitical issues have impacted transactions on which you've worked recently or things you see coming. How, how does this change the game? I think some deals are just taking longer. People are really focusing on the front end of a deal from a structuring perspective to try to structure around geopolitical concerns or to ensure that to the extent you know what a regulatory environment may be in a particular country, you're, you're designing a transaction that's likely to pass muster. Mm-hmm. Companies are considering alternative structures. They're considering given the breadth and the depth of the regimes that are coming into play, and frankly, the ever-changing geopolitical issues that arise um, across the globe. I think it's just much more front and center before a lot of people were focused on doing the deals and how it's going to impact their bottom line. And, you know, when you look at things with China, for example, there are people that even if a Chinese buyer is the likely best buyer, Mm -hmm. they're looking at what the alternatives are in order to put themselves in the best position to actually execute on the transaction. You know, I've got to believe getting a deal done, getting a transaction done is hard enough, right? I mean, all the things you guys go through, you know, uh, valuations and due diligence and probably 50 other things that I don't even know what they are. And yet you lay in this level of complexity, this whole new layer of concern and issues and so forth. Is it harder to do deals than it used to be because the world's in such an odd state right now? Harder to do deals is maybe an overstatement. It's just doing deals differently and you have to be thoughtful. There's certainly some uncertainty that exists because, for example, uh, the United States has not yet defined the critical technologies that will be part of their larger pilot program that I'm sure Chase can talk about. Right. So there's just uncertainty about what the consequences of your behavior are. But I would say this is just another thing to consider. And they're not necessarily negatively impacting transactions. They're just changing the way you do deals and the role of the government regulatory team and putting them more up front. They're never an afterthought. They always need to be a part of the discussion and shaping the way a deal comes about. Have you seen instances where investors got very skittish or backed out of a deal because of, you know, irregularities or geopolitical concerns somewhere in the world? Yes. Yeah. And and I've seen circumstances, you know, I've seen the opposite. I mean, we've represented a Chinese company in doing an acquisition in a jurisdiction and in an industry that were not 
critical technologies by any stretch. And I also saw that one go through without any problem after approaching CFIUS. So I don't think there's any indication that deals can't get done. I think it's really a question of being thoughtful about it and front-loading it in a way that allows you to approach the government to address any concerns up front so that you have much more certainty by the time you announce a deal. Come prepared, I guess, right? Let's go over to Chase for a second. I hear the term foreign direct investment issues a lot. Can you explain what people are talking about when they refer to foreign direct investment issues? Sure. Uh, happy to do that. So these are the controls uh, that countries place on foreign investments into companies that they're organized or operating in their particular country. And we've surveyed around the world to see what those various regimes look like. And they vary quite widely uh, around the globe, anywhere from some countries imposing mandatory filings for investments, foreign investments in their country, mm -hmm. to others that impose voluntary filings if particular triggers are satisfied, to some combination of the two, um, a mandatory slash voluntary process. And not only do we see differences there, but we see differences in the focus that countries are looking into from a foreign investment perspective. Some countries, such as the United States, for example, focus on national security and critical infrastructure. How is this foreign investment going to impact U.S. national security or the critical infrastructure of the United States, if at all? And if so, what do we need to do to prevent any negative impact on either of those two things? Could you give us an example without naming names, without naming a client, but just give us a scenario where this kind of situation might come about? Sure. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, there obviously are some obvious examples of where you might think this might come up if, for example, a U.S. target company is a major supplier to the defense industry, DOD, or large defense contractors. That's something that you know, clearly could be of interest to the U.S. government and something that we need to consider from a national security perspective. Sure. But there's a lot of less obvious cases out there as well, particularly where if you've got a technology or a product that you wouldn't necessarily consider to be cutting edge from either an export control or national security perspective, but nonetheless, find out that the government continues to rely on that old technology because they purchased it 30 years ago. And if you're a tech or an engineer type, you might look and say, well, this isn't something that anybody would care about. But if you look behind the curtain, the U.S. government relies heavily on these types of products. And so it's really important to understand not only the technology at issue, but how that is used in the defense industrial base. How do you possibly stay abreast of changes like that. You know, you, you just said it very well. There could be a technology out there that people think, yeah, no one's used that anymore. It's passe. It's been phased out, that kind of thing. How could you possibly know? I mean, are you halfway through a deal and you find this out? Or how, how, how do you research things like that, I wonder? I think it's very difficult. I think you've got to work closely with the target company to understand where their products are in the government supply chain, if at all and evaluate that based on you know, past experience and where we think the government's going from a foreign direct investment perspective. It's, it can be very difficult. I, I, absolutely. I, I would think so. Let's stay with Chase for a minute. Have any foreign direct investment regimes impacted any deals on which you've worked? Oh, absolutely. We've seen, again, I'll focus here in the U.S. because that's where I focus my practice, but we've seen it impact deals in many ways. One is, I think Randy hit on this earlier, 
that we've seen companies decide not even to pursue a deal because they don't want to go in front of CFIUS. That creates too much risk for them. Mm-hmm. And so we've seen that cause deals to fall apart even at the outset of a deal. I see. Randy, anything you'd add to that? Well, Chase and I worked on a transaction as well that was subject to the pilot program and got through, luckily for us, right before the government shutdown, mm. um, but was approved. And then we also have some circumstances. He and I were just talking recently about after a transaction was done, concern being raised at the operational level within an organization about whether future changes in CFIUS could have a negative impact on the transaction and what it means for the company. So I think people are really focused on the impact of CFIUS, how broad its scope is, and where there are risk interfaces Mm -hmm. for their transactions and their future. I sense this isn't going to get any less complicated. I mean, moving forward, when thinking about the foreign direct investment regimes around the world, how do you expect these coming changes to impact global M&A activity? And I guess more importantly, how can companies plan for those changes? Let's go to Randy first. I think the fact that different countries have different focuses, like Australia has a focus on agriculture, for example, the U.S., as Chase articulated, is on national security, it just creates some uncertainty. I think that it's going to make it more difficult for some investors, just like we're seeing in the U.S. today, where it's harder to get Chinese deals or deals with Chinese buyers through in certain industries. I think that's going to be the case in a variety of jurisdictions. And, you know, in terms of how we can plan for it, I think people have to be proactive. I think at the front of a deal, they really need to ask the question and realize it's not as intuitive as you might think. And that, I think, is one of the biggest challenges for people is not really knowing what's within the realm if any particular governmental, I keep using the word uh, regime, but it's really foreign direct investment regulation. Right, right. Chase, what would you add to that? And what are your clients concerned about in terms of these these changes that might be coming? I think that's absolutely right, what Randy articulated. And I think sort of piggybacking on some of the things that Randy said, I mean, I think these regimes not only impact timing of deals, but perhaps the viability of deals. And I think as more countries continue to focus on and be concerned about foreign investment in their countries, A lot of them are starting to follow the U.S. lead and sort of tighten the screws a bit on foreign investment and subject those investments to higher levels of scrutiny. And so I think not only do we need to think about what those regimes look like today, but as countries continue to think about and develop or amend their existing regimes, how are those developments and changes and amendments going to impact deals? Because a deal that could get through a foreign direct investment regime today might not get through that regime in three months once the changes are put into place. Sure, sure. I guess a a long-term view, even in a transaction like that, is is imperative at this point. Randy, Chase, this has been terrific, very informative. I know we're going to have more discussions on trends in global M&A and uh, direct foreign investment in the future. So thanks so much for being with us here today. Thank you. Just a reminder, this is the first in a series of Jones Day Talks podcasts focusing on foreign direct investment regulations around the world. To make sure you don't miss the next one, subscribe to Jones Day Talks on Apple Podcasts, Android, Google Play, and Stitcher, and be sure to check out some of our previous podcasts while you're there. For more information on Jones Day's M&A or government regulation practices, visit the practice page at jonesday.com. 
You'll find complete bios there for Randy and Chase, along with news, publications, and other great information. Thanks for listening to Jones Day Talks. I'm Dave Dalton. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.